Father in heaven, we ask, Lord, that your spirit will be with us now, that you will speak to our hearts, that, that we will be the ones who are able to hear your words and believe. Lord, let these words be powerful and transformational in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing in the book of John, and we've come to chapter 8. Now, an interesting thing takes place at the beginning of chapter 8 of the book of John. So we've been working our way through chapter 6 and then chapter 7. We spent quite a long time on 6 and then quite a while on 7. But now we get to chapter 8. And if you, if you have a Bible, and you may just want to grab one of those ones right in front of you here just to look at, because there's an interesting thing that takes place. So chapter 7 ends, Jesus has been having these discussions. So really, in this section, starting at the end of chapter 6, and then chapter 7, and on into chapter 8, you see these interesting interactions of Jesus with the people having theological discussions. There's not a lot of storyline that takes place after the feeding of the 5,000 up through the end of chapter 8, except for one interesting little inclusion here, that if you're looking in your Bible there in front of you, or the one you brought, you might see it's set off with parentheses or brackets or an asterisk or something like this, but the verses John 7:53 through 8:11 are likely highlighted in whatever Bible you have. And the reason for this is because the oldest manuscripts that they have found of the book of John do not contain those verses. Somewhere along the line, this particular story gets added at this place in the book of John. Now, interestingly, there's actually some other manuscripts that put this story somewhere else. Some of them include the story after John 7, verse 36. Others put it at the end of the book of John. Others put it in Luke. They don't even put it in the book of John. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this, and I'll bet Mark's going to talk about some of those next week, so I'm not going to go into that in detail, but you're going to want to hear that. But here's an interesting piece about it. I, I think, uh, let me give you my thinking on it. My thinking on it is, it's very likely this story happened during this span of time. And probably that's why it got put in this place. But it is a unique and interesting story, and in some ways, uh, somewhat offensive to the sensibilities of the time. But it is likely that it occurred somewhere in the context of this. But I want you to see these transitions here to these passages with and without this here. So if we were reading the end of chapter 7, beginning of verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to see Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has done? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. Now, if I keep reading, then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And then it says, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple, and then you get this story. But now let me read it to you with that part missing. 
So I'll pick it up here in verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And then skip down to verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. If you're actually following the flow of this section, in a lot of ways it makes more sense to go right to 12 because you have Jesus speaking and then, he, then they have comments and then Jesus speaks again and then there's a, a side commentary here and then Jesus speaks again. So in, in many ways this chapter, end of chapter 6 through 7 into 8 is this continuous theological flow that has this interesting story added to it. I'm not going to do the interesting story. Mark's going to do the interesting story next Sabbath. I'm going to go on. We're just going to jump over it for right now and then come back to it next Sabbath. I'm going to go on today, and I'm going to start in verse 12. So John 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. You remember when he was talking to them in the previous chapter, he was talking about living water and springs of living water. Now he's talking about light. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. Now, if you'll remember in the previous chapter, there was some discussion related to, we don't even know where this man is from. And other people saying, isn't this man from Nazareth? So there's confusion. Remember, we talked about that idea. There's a lot of confusion out there. And Jesus is saying, you don't really know where I'm from. Verse 15, you judge by human standards, I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Now this is an interesting argument that Jesus is making here. What he's saying is, if you get the same report from two trustworthy sources, you can believe that it's true. I am a trustworthy source telling you this, and the Father backs me up on this. Now, where does this come from? Well, if you go to the Old Testament, he says it says in your law. If you go to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, you'll find these words. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now what's interesting about this is that the context of Deuteronomy is the context of people accusing someone of doing wrong. But Jesus is actually using this language to say yes, but it can also be used to establish what is true. Now I want to go beyond this. And I want to read you what happens next in Deuteronomy here, verse 16. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, 
than do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So what's taking place here in this giving of the law is you don't convict somebody on the word of one person. You need other corroborating testimony to prove the point. But if it turns out that the accusation is malicious, then whatever they, that person accusing intended for you or that person being accused, then let that be the punishment that comes to them. It's an interesting system, isn't it? It would very much discourage you from false accusation, wouldn't it? Now, this actually becomes very interesting if you consider what happens to Jesus when he is on trial. And I want to go to Matthew 26 for just a second here, beginning in verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, now catch these words, were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. What did Deuteronomy say? You can't do it unless you have at least a couple witnesses. But it also said what should come to those who intentionally look for false witness. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward. What's the relevance of this? This idea of two that would have the same story. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Well, technically, that's not entirely a lie, is it? Because Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. They misunderstood what he said, but maybe technically they're not lying. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Now, just let me make a comment here in the context of court and also in the context of court of public opinion. Let's be careful. Let's be careful in our rush to judgment. See, one of the very powerful things that has been a truth in America is the reality of innocent until proven guilty. And it is a concept that I believe comes clearly from Scripture and from this idea that you don't convict someone just on innuendo or just on claim. There has to be a rigorous process before someone's convicted. Why? Because we want to let guilty people off? No. It's because we don't want to punish innocent people. And the decision that was made in the founding of this country very early on is that we would rather a guilty person get off than an innocent person suffer. I'm not sure we still think that. I'm not sure we still embrace that concept. Because now that we've entered into this reality of a whole cancel culture, where we will write someone off based on innuendo, or write them off because they didn't apologize well enough. I'm not sure this is where we want to live. This is taking on French Revolution-type overtones. 
So we want to be careful. Now, we can't control everything out there, can we? You know that, right? But we can behave ourselves in here. So let's not let out there tear this apart. And let's stay faithful to these concepts and these principles here that take place. So, so Caiaphas is, calls Jesus out. And we'll go back here to what he says. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. What was the whole point of the book of John? That you might believe he's the Messiah, the Son of God. Here's the high priest saying, tell us, are you this guy? It's the right question. But it's the wrong spirit. Verse 64, you have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they say, he is deserving of death. One of the things about Jesus don't ask him a question if you're not ready for the answer. Because when he tells you the truth, your response to his answer may put you in a pretty bad spot. You better be ready when you ask him a question. You better be ready to believe. One wonders what became of the false witnesses that tried to accuse Jesus. Did the fate they wanted for him come to them as the law required? Or has it been more like in our case, the grace that flowed from Jesus on the cross came to them? You see, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. This principle of of Two witnesses making an accusation makes an appearance again in, in the book 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. And what it says is that, that a, a leader, uh, an elder, should not be convicted on the accusation of one, but there should be more than one. But it also says after that, if in fact this elder has misbehaved, and it is true, they should be reprimanded in the context of the whole of the community. The Bible is concerned with justice, but it is also opposed to the punishment of the innocent. Therefore, we always need to be careful and rigorous in what we do and not rush to judgment just because what we heard happened fits a narrative in our minds. We've got to be patient. But let's get back to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. Jesus knows who he is, but they do not. Verse 15, you judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. Human standards. There's a caution here for us, right? 
invariably we establish human standards. It's, it's the nature of culture. Culture emerges. Culture exists. It becomes this, this reality of unwritten rules that we all know and follow. And ironically, in culture, we persecute the one who breaks the unwritten rule far more than we persecute the one who breaks the written rule. Because everybody's supposed to know the unwritten rules. But diversity creates a crisis when it comes to unwritten rules. Because the nature of diversity is you have different unwritten rules. And most of the crises that take place in the church are the result of judging one another by human standards. By cultural conflict. By contextual disagreement. Very rarely do we argue in the church community over valid theological content. Mostly we argue about stuff. So Jesus is calling them out on this. And we've got to be conscious of our own tendency on this ground. That we pass no judgment by human standards. Verse 16, but, I do judge, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. The other witness is the Father who sent me. Okay, this is all true, but how do you prove it? How do you prove that God is backing up what Jesus said? Well, here's the thing, and we, we'll come back to this idea. We've, we've talked about it before, but we're back to it again here. The clear implication from Jesus' words is that the voice of God is discernible if you are open to hearing it. He's saying, I'm telling you the truth, and the Father is backing me up. Check your spirit. He's saying you should be able to tell. This is, again... Along that same line of what takes place in Matthew 16, when, when uh, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, God, Jesus says to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. He's saying, you heard this directly from God. And I have said to you that everyone who truly believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one sent by God to the earth, and in fact God's Son, has been told this by God. Maybe you heard it from the mouth of a preacher. Maybe you heard it from Pastor Benzinger one time when he was doing a crusade. But it is the Holy Spirit that convicts your heart to believe it. Because there's nothing rational about saying there is a man who is God's son. So if you actually believe that, it's a conviction from the Spirit of God. This is not inconsistent with the whole of Scripture. And we talked about this before as well. Isaiah 54 verse 13 says, Your children will be taught by God. This is replayed in John 6.45. Jesus makes the comment. And you hear it again in Paul's writings in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9. He says, You have been taught by God to love one another. He's saying to the Thessalonian believers... God has taught you to love each other. I see it in the way you do it. So what I want you to understand is it is possible for us 
to hear God's voice, to be led by him and taught by him. But we go on. Verse 19, then they asked him, where is your father? They've gone very literal on him. You see them do that throughout this passage, throughout this whole section. He'll make a statement, and then they go literal. Where is your father? It's a literal statement, and it's a pointed statement with implications. Why are there implications? Well, if you remember all the way back to the beginning of the story, Mary's pregnant before she's married. And those rumors hang on. And they stay around. And this statement here is incredibly pointed. And they're challenging him that he is illegitimate. He responds, you do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But I want you to go back and hear his answer again. You do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. What's, what's going on here? Well, there's an interesting thing that's going to take place just six chapters later in John 14. And I want you to go over and hear these words. This is Jesus right at the very end of his life. In, in, in chapter 13, he washes the feet. And then we get to 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 is the prayer. This is Jesus talking to the disciples just before he's to be betrayed. And listen to these words. John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. But now, watch Philip's question here. Because it's very much the same question as Jesus gets asked before. Verse 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So here's the challenge of these words of Jesus. Thinking that you know God without knowing Jesus is an incomplete understanding of God. Now why is that relevant? Well, it was relevant in my own life because one day as I was in my process of, of studying to become a pastor... It occurred to me that I have a perception that I know God, but I'm not really clear on Jesus. And as I read this passage with that mindset, I said to myself, wait a minute, I'm deceiving myself to think that I know God, but don't know Jesus. You see, what I had was an incomplete revelation of God. Now, how did I get that? Well, if you go to Hebrews, 
Hebrews chapter 1, you find these very interesting words. And it goes like this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. All right. You can get a concept of God from the stories of the Old Testament. But you cannot understand the fullness of God without knowing Jesus. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is in our history, but we don't always see it. Because sometimes in our, in our context of law and order and behaviorism, we come to think of God as the rule maker as opposed to the Savior and Redeemer. But I think this is what Ellen White was getting at when she would use the phrase, we want the truth as it is in Jesus. We're not just looking for the truth. We're looking to understand all truth in the context of Jesus. All doctrine we hold is thin without Jesus in the middle of it. We did a series on this uh, at Forest Lake years ago. We called it Frames. The doctrines are frames, but the picture is Jesus. Okay? It, so go to your house, at your house. Do you have a whole bunch of pretty frames up on the wall with nothing in them? I mean, pretty frames are great. But who hangs a frame and puts nothing in it? Well, there are way too many people who do that with doctrine. The doctrines are there to reveal Jesus. And this is what I believe Pastor Japhet was trying to say for so long with the phrase, Jesus all. It's this same idea. No man comes to the Father but through me. No woman knows the Father without knowing Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. So let's go back. Then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. This is verse 19. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that what he says? Where I go? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? Again, back to this confusion. They don't understand what he's talking about. Now, now this is an interesting point, and I want you to go back to John 14 again. 
Because the disciples continue to have the same questions. John 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now previously in chapter 8, he says, you don't know where I'm going. But now talking to his disciples, he says, you know the way. But now Thomas, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? It's the exact same question, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So, so what do we take from that? Jesus is saying, you don't know the way to where I'm going. Why don't they know the way? Because Jesus is the way. So the interesting thing is, the way to get to the Father is not a map. You don't find it on your phone. You don't put in celestial throne and it shows you the way. What you do is you type in celestial phone and it shows you Jesus. Not celestial phone, celestial throne. And it shows you a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the way. And the reason they couldn't know the way is because they refused to know Jesus. I can't help but think that the conversation Jesus is having in John 14 with the disciples is the conversation he longs to have in John 8 with the crowd. But because they won't believe, he can't have it. Verse 23 of John 8. But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Now verse 25, who are you, they asked. Ah, they're finally asking the right question. But here's the thing. The question only matters if you're willing to believe the answer. We see that happen when when the high priest stands up and says, tell us who you are. But they're not willing to believe the answer. Verse 25, who are you, they asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus said. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Now catch verse 30. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. So here's the thing. This is back to that idea. If you're willing to believe, the Holy Spirit will convict your heart when the story of Jesus is told. If you're not willing to believe, then you're that hard soil and the seed won't ever take root. What is your heart willing to do? Are you willing to believe? 
The whole point of the book of John is that you would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, have eternal life. It's very simple. It's also the hardest thing you'll ever do. But let's go back now for the conclusion. Let's go back to this beginning section of what Jesus says in, verse eight, verse, in chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you were ever looking for a way to find clarity in a world of confusion, this is it. Jesus is the light of the world. This, this comes to us from the very beginning of the book of John. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That's what chapter 8 is all about. The light coming to his own, and they do not receive him. They did not recognize him. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own. They did not receive him. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. To everyone willing to believe. Remember John 3.16, of course. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The light of the world. Now here's the thing. Here's what happens. Do you remember we talked about last time, Jesus talked about anyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. And from them they will become fountains of living water. We talked about that prophecy in Ezekiel of how the water flows out from under the throne, from from under the altar, and it's just a trickle. The altar represents the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. The living water comes out as a trickle. But as it's received by those who believe, the further it goes, the deeper it gets. The prophecy says a little ways out it was knee deep, and then further from that it was to the waist. This is the reality of the work that Jesus does When his life comes into the life of the believers, they become fountains and living water comes out of them. Well, the same thing happens with light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And when you receive the light of Jesus into your life, guess what happens? Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. You see, the same thing that happens with the water, it multiplies through the believers. So does the light. When the light of God comes into a community, into a people, they then become radiant as well, and they walk into a world of darkness and bring light wherever they go. Jesus intended 
that that light would go to everyone. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see God's plan? Through Jesus, the light comes into the world. And through those who put their hope in Jesus, that light comes into their lives and they go forth with the light of God to the whole of the world. And it's not just for the Jews and it's not just for one little select group. The light is for the whole world. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. Walk in the light. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So here's the question. Where is the dark in your life right now? Is there a dark place in your life right now? Is there a place of resentment? Is there a place of hate? Is there a place of anger? Justifiable? Where is the darkness in your life? Because Jesus longs to come and be the light in the darkness. Are you willing to let Jesus light up your darkness? Or do you want to hang on to it? Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Jesus is the light of the world. Let him shine on the dark places within you and you will begin to shine for him in the dark world. Let him bring light and hope to your soul. And you will bring light and hope to the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you promise that those who accept your light will become lights for you and that this world that is so dark 
the darkness ever trying to creep forward. Yet, that darkness cannot overcome your light. The light in Jesus and the light that shines in everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. So Lord, I pray we would be as a city on a hill with the light of Jesus shining in our hearts. That we will put our hope and trust in him. And that he, through us, will do a great work in this day, in this place, in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.